Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Pamela Anderson has spent most of her life with other people trying to tell her story. Maybe it's like her image in Baywatch or in Playboy or, you know, a major TV show that was made about her relationship with her ex-husband, Tommy Lee. Pamela Anderson is saying, that's enough. I want to tell my own story. And she'll be here to tell you how that feels. That's coming up. Plus, two playwrights, Bianca Miranda and Keisha Cheeseman, they have this new show about the F word. Not the F word that I I shouldn't say on Canada's public broadcaster, but the word fat. And they'll talk to you a little bit about why they think their show is blowing up the way that it is. That's coming up. So I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. Pamela Anderson from Ladysmith, British Columbia, She's plucked out of obscurity at a football game. She poses in Playboy. She stars in Baywatch and becomes one of the most famous people in the world. She marries Tommy Lee from Motley Crue. It's all over, like, the tabloids. And, I mean, you know the story. She and Tommy, um, a very private video of theirs is stolen. It's eventually uploaded to the internet. You know, it's, it's a life that seems like it's mired in controversy. But the thing is, is that everything I just told you, when you listen to our conversation, it begins to dawn on you, I think, that everything that you know about her was told to you by somebody else. And Pamela Anderson wants to take her own story back. She wants to tell you where she came from. She wants to tell you what she's been through. And she's doing that through a new documentary. It's on Netflix. It's called Pamela, A Love Story, a new memoir, a new book called Love, Pamela. It was a great joy to spend some time talking to her about her own life. Here's my conversation with Pamela Anderson. I must say, I didn't know if I would ever get a chance to meet you. (laughs) Pamela Anderson, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. How are you? I'm great. This is my last interview of this big long press tour, so we saved the best for last. Did I hear you're on the did I hear you're on the New York Times bestseller list? Yes. Number two. What do you make of that? Behind Harry. Or Prince Harry. Prince Harry. Yeah. Behind Prince Harry. I'm no, I'm so excited. I mean I I yesterday my publisher called me and I was like, Oh no, what happened? Why is she calling me? Why is Kate calling me? And she called and she was just in tears. She was so happy for me. She was like, This is really great. So I'm 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 so grateful. I couldn't I can't believe it. <laughs> how, how has it been doing the press for this thing? Because it's one thing to tell the stories in the book. It's another thing to get asked about them. Yeah, you kind of think you're off the hook when you write a book and do a documentary. You think, okay, now I've done that. But then you have to do all the press for the book and then you have to retell all the stories. And so it's, a, it's hard work, but it's, it's definitely rewarding. And it's been very therapeutic, therapeutic? for everybody around me. <laughs> it's been therapeutic for, for you? or Yes, for me, of course, to kind of go back and revisit those chapters in my life and kind of put it to rest and... Uh, have the documentary just be uh, just complete, you know, 100% just disclosure, full disclosure, and not really having any part of that, just saying, here's the key to my archives, and I know I haven't murdered anybody, so anything other than that, I think I'm pretty good. Yeah. So it was been, it's been an interesting 
release, relief. Now I feel like the whole story is there. So, you know, we kind of need to be kinder to each other, maybe give each other a break sometimes. And when I look at people that are, um, you know, just even acting out or misdirected anger, I always think, what's their childhood like? You know, we kind of, we're whole people and not just tidbits of things that we throw together for press headlines. I mean, you, you would know that more than most. I mean, <laughs> you, you have been sort of, I mean, one thing that's really clear from this documentary and from this book is how you're talked about, like how people talk about you, how people talked about you, especially during those, big, those kind of big years. Um, so I would understand that you would be like, hey, I'm a full person. I have a story. I am more than just these headlines. I am more than just this narrative. And as you said, I have a childhood. Mm-hmm. How was it? How was your childhood in, in Ladysmith? Well, I mean, I had a, I had a very adventurous kind of um, wonderful upbringing. I mean, my upbringing was in nature and at the beach. I mean, I was really, really fortunate, really fortunate. My parents were madly in love, very young. Um, and, you know, this, they're still together. They're more in love than ever, and they're my heroes. But, you know, we have, um, we all have, you know, nothing is perfect. No human is perfect. And we all got through it. Yeah, I mean, I should say for people who don't know, you're, you're, there was sort of a, a abuse from your, it's weird to say this Babysitter. I know, it's hard to, like, it's like, yeah. I talk a lot about it in the book. I talk about just different things that, I wanted to talk about pivotal moments in my, in my life. And I, there's definitely more good than bad in my life. But there were moments of, um, that were difficult in my childhood, uh, a babysitter, um, uh, you know, she molested me when I was, you know, probably about six years old and I wished her dead and then she died. And it's just a bunch of, um, crazy things that have happened. <laughs> I just got through it. I think with my imagination, I still feel like, um, you know, I don't, I don't feel like a victim. I don't feel, I feel like there's all, there's things that happen in people's lives and you have to get over them because <laughs> they accumulate, you know, one th- something happens to you, then another thing happens and it kind of compounds. Yeah. So it's great to be able to go back and feel those feelings and get through those and not hold, uh, just forgiveness is a big thing. How's the, how does the sharing of it feel? Like, how does the, I mean, in the, uh, we, we don't have to talk about this too much, right. but you're right. There's, there's stories in the beginning about, you know, you, you were molested by a babysitter and then, you know, you, you hope that babysitter dies. She then dies. I can't imagine how much, what that would do then to you as a child. Then a kid thinks that I did it. You know, I thought my magical mind. And you, might, you must have felt guilt or you must have. I felt have, guilt. I yeah. didn't, couldn't tell my parents anything then. And then also just like, you know, boyfriends who abused you, you know, men, men who abused you. What does it feel like when you write these down and share them with, with people? I think that was the hardest stuff to write because, but then I feel like the hardest, you know, you, you dig down for these words and you want to explain it and you want to be honest and you want to go there. And I think, oh God, I can't write that. And then I go, oh no, I have to write that. Now that I've said that I can't write that, that's, that means those words have to be written. Those are the difficult ones. And so I think you kind of, it's helpful because you can kind of set the stage maybe for somebody else to talk about those things. Because it's it's not an easy thing to talk about. It's sometimes it's easier to write. Yeah. I mean, writing about it was one thing, but then having to talk about it now and talk about it in um, in interviews and things, I think is is hard too. But I don't want to not go there because it's part of my life, and I and I've learned how to live with joy and choosing happiness was always something that I worked on. I, I understand. I think what what I'm curious about is like when you actually because you wrote this book yourself. It's important right. for me to, to mention that like there was no ghostwriter, no there ghost was writer. nothing. You very rare. 
Yes, very rare. But I was always a writer. I wrote journals my whole life. My journal was my best friend. I've always written. Your poetry in the book is, is really beautiful and really kind of stands out at the very beginning. What I'm curious about is when you write these stories, like physically, like when you press the period mm-hmm. after you write the story down in a word processor or however you did it, mm-hmm. what's, the, what's, the, what's the emotion? Well, if I wrote things down in my journal, I just felt like at least there's proof. I don't know. As a little kid, I always thought there's proof. There's proof that it happened. There's, um, there's just proof, proof of existence, yeah. proof of everything. Writing for me felt like proof of existence. Like I wanted to write down the true story so that if something were to happen to me, I mean, this, I know it sounds dramatic, but that's always was part of my reason for writing, that I wanted the truth to be out there no matter if, if something were to happen to me in my life, that these thoughts and emotions and feelings were recorded. I don't know why. I just I have no idea why I didn't ever expect to be, you know, and, and on TV or famous or anything. Even as a child, I felt that, and I felt like I could let it go a little bit. If I wrote it down, then I had to stop thinking about it. If you wrote it down, if you something happened and you good or bad, right? And you wrote it down, it was it was there for the record. If anything ever happened to you, the story <laughs> was told. I know. It strikes me that you were worried about something happening to you at such a young age. You know. I don't know what that was, but that was. Journaling, too, was something I did to know what I was feeling. If I wrote something down, I could read it and go, oh, that's how I'm feeling. Because, you know, your head, you're thinking about so many things. But when you're writing, it all makes sense. So that was also an exercise I did. You know, there's something to be said about, like, when you say, you know, I, I, um, I don't know why I thought I, I wrote all this stuff down. I don't know why I was worried about something happening to me because, you know, there was no, no expectation of it. But I, 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 someone said this thing to me one time. They said that, that, that people that remarkable things have happened to are not comforted by percentages. Hmm. Essentially, if something very rare has happened to you, you are no longer comforted by, oh, for God's sake, Pamela, 95% of people don't have to deal with that. Because no. because you go, hey, a very stri- a lot of very strange things have happened to me. You yeah, know what I, I mean? Wanted, and I wanted to express how I was feeling about those things. I think that's what was the most important part of writing for me was that I wanted to find those words because we all we rely on such, you know, there's a group of words that we always use. But what are the words that we don't always use? Maybe I can explain this in a way that's going to be um, more descriptive, more, you know, something different. And I felt um, I wanted to kind of touch on things, but be descriptive in those moments and set the stage and, and kind of almost think of it as a movie or a script or a play. And so I felt really drawn to taking everything that I've learned in my life and try and paint the picture of something that felt like you were maybe sitting at the movies and watching. Tell me the movie of you getting discovered at the BC Lions game. <laughs> Well, I went to a BC Lions game with some neighbors who had free tickets and Labatt's Beer t-shirts. And if we wore the Labatt's Beer t-shirts, we could get in for free. So we all went, and I didn't want to go, but my girlfriend really wanted to go, and we went. And I guess the cameraman zoomed in on me and put me up on the big jumbotron. And I remember looking up going, oh, I look terrible. Before I realized it was me, I was already judging myself, thinking, I look terrible. Then I went, oh, my gosh, that's me up there. And then my friends made me stand up and hold my T-shirt. And they kind of had me going back and forth all night and ended up on Monday Night Football ads. And Labatt's asked me to do a commercial. And then the gym I was working at, I was working at a tanning salon at the gym. And they asked me to do their advertising. And then, you know, I was just doing all these crazy things. And I thought – and then Playboy called – because I was listed in the phone book. And I said, no. 
And then I... They had seen the uh, Monday Night Football. Yeah, so this was just all kind of going really fast. And then um, I decided at one time because my boyfriend was really jealous and we were just in the middle of a fight and and the phone rang and it was Marilyn Grabowski from Playboy. And she said, would you like to come down and do a Playboy cover? And I just looked at him and said, Playboy? (laughs) Sure. And then he threw silverware at me until I could get out the door. <laughs> just like just be, it was crazy. Anyway, I ended up going to LA, my first plane ride. First plane ride ever. Yeah, and landed on Gay Pride Day. It was quite a parade. It was just. What was on your mind on the plane? I just was looking out at the clouds and. You know, I was reading a Shirley MacLaine book, Out on a Limb. And so I had that book with me. And I was just looking out at the clouds and then seeing the city coming. And then I remember when we landed, I was like, yay! You know, and no one else was <laughs> clapping and saying, yay! <laughs> we landed! We did it! It was just, yeah, I was very excited. Um, it must have been so overwhelming to go from kind of complete anonymity to from going to one sports game. Well, and I was on my own in the plane and, and I on my own going to Los Angeles. And then I landed and it was Gay Pride Day. So we're getting through a parade and just these beautiful people everywhere. It's just eye candy. It just was like an explosion of bright colors. And then to get to my hotel. And then I remember my hotel, I remember thinking, can I use the phone? Can I? I didn't know what room service was. You know, I ended up going to the it was the Russian tea room, actually, at the Bellage at that time. I remember seeing Shirley MacLaine the, in the, the restaurant. The person whose book you were just reading. I had the book. Wow. Yeah. And she and I was staring at her a bit too long, and then she, like, glared at me, and I was scared. <laughs> you know, that Shirley MacLaine kind of glare. I guess I was looking at her too long. But it was just one thing after another after that. You, you, when you pose for Playboy, you can tell from the documentary and from the book that something changes in you. Well, I was extremely shy, if anyone can believe that. I was painfully shy. I was, actually felt paralyzed by it. And I was doing this as a leap of faith. I thought, I can't, I have, if, if somebody else can do it, I can do it. But I was just shaking. And I remember the first roll of film. I, I mean, I was covered. I wasn't nude at all, but I was nude underneath the jacket. And we, it was only one roll of film because I actually physically got sick. I was so, so nervous. But um, I just remember thinking... Let's do this. And I really felt like I was falling off a cliff. And I just kind of let myself go and opened my eyes to the first flash. And bam, there I was shooting, you know, you know, to the side, smiling, all this kind of stuff. And I just, it was really a leap of faith. And I, and I think that that's where I kind of took my power back. I felt empowered by it. I felt like a woman. I felt like I had claimed my sensuality, my sexuality, that this was my body and I was in control. That people had – my understanding of that is that people had tried to take that from you or tried to own you, own your body, own your sexuality. And then that's what you mean by take it back? Well, this, this with the, the times where I felt abused, you know, taken advantage of when I was a young teenager and again with a boyfriend and his friends and I felt really shut down. And that was I think what the shyness was. I felt really confused. And, you know, I, I tell this to people, too, and I work a lot with the National Domestic Violence Hotline. My foundation um, supports them. And we talk a lot about um, abuse and how it's, a, it's, it's something that's taken away from you. And I, and I feel like I just really felt empowered for once. 
that my body was mine and that I still wanted to be a sensual, sexy woman, but I had no idea how to be that without causing, without people thinking of me differently. You know, I really felt when, when I was when they were at 12 years old, when an older man uh, raped me, I felt like it was imprinted on my forehead. I, as much as I didn't want to tell anybody, I felt like everybody knew, and I felt I was so ashamed. And and then I, you know, it was just conf- it was just a very confusing time for me. And really, everything came together when I made the choice yeah. to be in Playboy. And I felt, you know, at the Playboy Mansion, and just how things kind of. Yeah, I felt I felt safe there. Yeah. I mean, people think that's crazy, but actually, I, I knew when I was there that people were looking out for me, and yeah. and yeah, that's when the, a lot changed. Then I mean, and everything changed. I mean, it's from uh, Playboy that you then are cast in. Like, I think it's Married with Children, <laughs> yeah. and then Home Improvement, yeah. and then Baywatch, and Baywatch gets watched by 1.1 billion people. CJ, it's beautiful up here. You gotta love it, huh? Yeah, it's beautiful, but. I miss the beach. You should come back to Baywatch. Yeah, rookie swim starts next week. Requalify, I'll get you a tower. Well, I guess there's nothing holding me here anymore, is there? It's unbelievable. They're still streaming Baywatch. It's crazy. H- how does how do you go? Like, do you remember the call that like, oh, th- we're going to do this show about lifeguards, and we want you to be a part of it? Or well, Playboy people, gets the call, right? Yeah, people were calling Playboy. I think they they I saw. On something lately, someone said they tried to get me to go there 12 times, but I thought Marina Del Rey seemed very exotic and very far away, and I wasn't going to drive there myself. And so at some point, I ended up going with a boyfriend, David Charvet, actually, and they ended up hiring both of us. You had no, you had no intention of being an actor, Pamela? No. I thought actor people had actor children that had actor babies. I just didn't think that was even in the cards for me. I mm-hmm. had no idea what that even meant. So I just felt really grateful for every time I had a job. And I thought, I'm just going to go home as soon as this stops. It hasn't stopped. No. <laughs> <laughs> like the fame, you thought the yeah, fame was going to go away well, very quickly. I thought, quickly. you know, if I don't get another job, I mean, it just kept on going one thing after another. And then, of <laughs> course, I got married and had babies and, and you know, yeah. that, there's all of that story. But, yeah, there's... It's quite a quite a wild ride, but it's nice to be home. It's nice to be yeah. home. I, I I came full circle. I knew I was going to end up back yeah. in Ladysmith at some point. I, I want to talk just a little bit about that wild ride, but I don't want to necessarily get into the details of it. Okay. So, so you know, the the fame very famously, most people's in proposal stories aren't famous. But very famously, when you meet Tommy Lee, um, you 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 know each other for four days, and you and you get married. Um, and then, um, you know, it's, it's, it's complicated after that. I think when I was reading the book that there were moments where I said she could write about this relationship. It's none of my business. But you could write about that relationship in a way that is tinged with anger and, and regret. Mm. But when I read it, it, there's a lot of love and joy for that time. Can you talk to me about that? I think when my kids were small, that was my favorite time. Hi, Brandon. <laughs> you go, hey. It's Daddy and Mommy. Look at his thing with Daddy. Baby, you're Daddy. It's a whole new life now. <laughs> uh, when we were all together. Because that's all I ever wanted was a family and kids and to look after somebody and to have that kind of heightened sense of romance. I mean, coming in as your knight in shining armor, literally. Pamela, I've said it before and I'll say it again. I have waited my entire life to meet a woman as wonderful as you. 
If only ever wanted to be a knight in shining armor. <laughs> yeah, did. he wore a, yeah. he wore a, a knight uh, outfit. I mean, we know? weren't able to use some of the footage of a, a birthday party I threw for him, which was quite wild. You know, I had the Mad Hatter hat on, and and you know, I, it was it was insane. It was insane. He was a clown. We came on a tour bus with all the Cirque du Soleil performers, a Ferris wheel, a, um, a you know, circus mirrors in the bathroom, just like the birthday party of Lady Smith. You yeah, know, everyone same thing. dressed with the appetizers <laughs> hanging off their bikinis. I mean, it was just wild. Everything I could dream up, I did. Yeah, and it, we, we had a great great time. Um, and so sometimes I think that that kind of romantic love might not be sustainable. And with all the mythology and fairy tales and everything I've read and, and in um, psychology behind mythology, they do say romantic love is unsustainable. But um, so that means that that was that and, and I appreciate it. And I'm really happy where I'm at right now. Being, yeah. uh, the capacity to be alone is the capacity to love that great Osho quote. So that's what I'm working on. <laughs> One of the best shows of the year, according to Apple, Amazon and Time, is back for another round. This season, we're diving deep into some of McCartney's most beloved songs. Yesterday, Band on the Run, Hey Jude. And McCartney's favourite song in his entire catalogue, Here, There and Everywhere. Listen to season two of McCartney, A Life in Lyrics on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I feel great because I'm talking about the stuff that I care about. Like right now you're asking me questions about what I care about instead of my boyfriends and my boobs. You know, that's kind of... Let me just say, I I get what Pamela Anderson is getting at there. My name's Tom Power. You're listening to Q. For the past, like, 30 years, interviewers like me have been asking Pamela Anderson about stuff like who she's dating and what she looks like. And a lot of time asking her about this one event in Pamela Anderson's life that kind of has followed her everywhere. A private video was stolen from her and her husband Tommy Lee's home. It was full of very intimate moments in their relationships, including some sexual scenes. Uh, One of the people they had hired to do construction on their house stole an entire safe from their home, which had that tape in it. Uh, The tape was then edited. It was eventually uploaded to the internet. um, And it became the first, quote unquote, sex tape to go viral. And the story gets made into this new show from Hulu, from Disney Plus. It's called Pam and Tommy, which purported to like tell the story from Pamela Anderson's viewpoint. But did it? That's where the next half of our conversation picks up. You never say sex tape. You only say the tape. Stolen property. Home movies that were spliced together. There was never a tape made for distribution or a sex tape. It was home movies they spliced together because Tommy and I were naked all the time. I mean, we were just crazy yeah. two people in love. It was just us uh, naked on holidays. Yeah. And maybe there was one tiny little part that was more sexual, but it was more spliced together to look like we yeah. made something. I still haven't seen it, so I'm not quite sure what sure, it is. Sure, sure. I mean, the, <laughs> the, the, the footage in the documentaries is, is, is one of a, of a lot of love. What What happens when that incredibly traumatic thing is made into kind of entertainment. There was that TV show, the Pam and Tommy TV show, which I know you haven't seen. Yeah. It was interesting to me, to be honest with you, because when I first heard about it, 
okay, they're going to make a dramatization of this time in, in Pamela Anderson and Tommy Lee's life. But don't worry, they said. You know, it's going to be about you know, the, the, the tremendous um, atrocities done to Pamela Anderson. It's going to be about her, her kind of goodness. And then quickly afterwards, I read, oh, but Pamela Anderson doesn't want anything to do with this. She I never want, had anything know, to yeah. do with it and neither did Tommy. So I, it felt silly and superficial and shallow and rude. <laughs> uh, you know, and I get, I always get concerned for my kids. You know, they're, we've gone, all gone through a lot together and we get through things as they come and, and we've always been very open and honest about all the things in our life. But I didn't really want that to come out. I thought that was silly. But I was already in the process of doing a documentary and writing my book. So it kind of all happened for the fact that I get to tell my own story makes it feel better. Yeah, it felt salient that you had this documentary coming out, that people yeah. were purporting to tell your story for you and that you were able to go like, actually, no. I'm, actually, this is how it really happened. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to tell it. And and then your and your boys are such a big part of it. Yeah. How old are they now? Uh, 26. 20, Brandon's 26 and Dylan's 25. And they, you say they really support you. Can you tell me about that? Oh, they support me completely. They were really – they said, Mom, it's time you tell your story. So they really supported me with the book. Um, you know, Brandon is, is very much a part of the business, the family business. And he said he just really wanted to show his mom and, and he felt like I hadn't been seen and this was a great opportunity to do that, that it was time. What, what do you mean when he says they feel like <laughs> you've never been seen? Well, because they, you know, they're young and they're, they see more than I do when it comes to uh, these kind of things. And they just thought that it'd be nice to be able to tell the full story. And they weren't even really aware of the full, full story. I mean, yeah. the gritty, gory details. But they knew I'd. I'm strong for a reason that I and that I have this kind of philosophical way of even parenting that they kind of were just curious too. And just like Brandon said, a lot of this was putting pieces of his life back together or his life, seeing his life unfold in reverse, he likes to say. And we're all very close. It's been very freeing to know that it's done. It's done. Now I can move on. When you, when you say you have these sort of philosophical approaches to your life, um, I'm struck by something you said at the very beginning that I wanted to, to follow up on. You said, Tom, I'm not a victim. Mm -hmm. uh, um, that, that, I've heard you say that a few times. That feels important for you to say. Can you tell me about that? Well, I, I feel like um, this weaponized empathy is a thing. I think that um, – Weaponized empathy? Yeah. I don't feel like sorry for somebody is effective. I think that like that's just what happened and now we can move on and 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 be better people and people's stories can inspire us to be better people and, and good and kind and, and my what I do each day is just try not to hurt anybody and I think that's if that's a real simple um, almost rebellious kind of rebel move is to be happy yeah. in spite of everything, anything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that kindness and compassion mm -hmm. – uh, unconditionally and joy yeah. unconditionally right. are like incredibly powerful things mm -hmm. and kind of radical things in some ways, right? Yeah, you have to be, you know, you, strong and tough and you, life is hard for everybody. Yeah. And so let's be good to each other. I love that idea of weaponized empathy. The idea that when people will say, oh, well, Pam, your you know, pro private property was stolen from you or you had to go through this or you had to go through that. Like they, they oh, I'm so sorry for you, but are they and is that a, is that a genuine emotion is, is, it, is that what you mean by weaponized empathy well i just feel like life is hard for everybody and and you can be inspired by someone's story and empowered by them but the when you tell your story you're not necessarily looking for sympathy you're just telling your story very zen of you 
<laughs> is that Zen? I don't know what it is. I say weird stuff sometimes. I don't even know where it comes from. I think I think what I, I think what <laughs> I'm, I'm referring to like is like is like this idea. I mean, I think about this all the time. Is that like the goal is is to just be a boat on the water? Oh, to not be above and not be up in the waves or not be underneath, but just to be on the water. We're all in the soup together. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. What made you move home to Canada? Oh, I always knew I was going to move home to Canada. Um, I wanted to be closer to my parents, too, in their elder years. I've moved them onto my property. They have their own house, their own cabin, so it's enough space. We're not on top of each other. We have five dogs and a huge, beautiful vegetable garden, rose garden, and that's my favorite place. I, I, people would talk t- talk about, and I can relate to this, the idea that when you go home to the place that you're from, you feel like a different person. Do you feel like a different person? I feel yet? exactly the same way I did as I was five years old, running through the same trees. I like to say the trees have known me since birth. You know, you, they're the same trees. And I have this beautiful property, and I remember running on the beach when I was, you know, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, running up to my grandma's house, which I own now, and um, getting popsicles and chocolate bars and giving them to all my friends. Having a tab, I'd like to run up. <laughs> it's just been, it's, it's interesting. I feel like my dad said, because I renovated everything, but I didn't really do the floors. So my dad said, the only thing the same about this house is that the squeaks are in the same spots when he walks through his house where his childhood home. When did you forth. first decide to go back? Uh, I was in France and COVID hit. And I thought, I need to go home. I went home and started to reflect on my whole life. I mean, it was very... You know, going back home is harder than you than it looks. What do you <laughs> so, mean? well, just going home to retracing the steps of my childhood, which weren't always easy. Yeah. So it was it was very therapeutic, and also people have kind of moved on, stuffed those feelings down, and I kind of I think even for my parents, it can be really annoying having a famous daughter, but not. <laughs> I mean, it's a balance because we do have the beautiful home, and I still have the property, and I'm able to maintain it and keep it for all of us. So there's good and bad. Yeah. With having a famous daughter. I never thought about that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I wrote yeah. a book, so that's something, you know, is, is not easy on everybody because, especially my mom, it's kind of tested our relationship a lot because she's found her way to kind of get through her life, her childhood, her marriage, her thing, and, and now to have it public is hard because it's readdressing everything and it's bringing things up. But I feel like this was my purpose. This was my purpose on earth. Yeah. The reason everything, I, I went through everything so I can write about it and that maybe someone can be helped by it too. But you know what it's like with that old, the older generations. They can be like, oh, sure, yeah, I went through hard things. But that's it. You know, you, you move on, you know, you, you pick Sorry, yourself I'm up. Sorry, I'm Stir the Pot Pam. You know? That's what they call but, me. But like, <laughs> but like the, 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 your, your, the, the younger generation, of which we are a part of, yeah. we're, we're more willing to investigate and, and to question but why. You know what? You know? you know, stress and that kind of stuffing stuff down causes disease. Yeah. I mean, I want my mom to be able to work through this with therapists or, and with me and with both of us together and kind of cut that lineage that um, yeah. that generational, that female thing that we do, that, that, you know, that walking on eggshells thing. It's like, let's not do that anymore. Let's just be honest. Let's just be open and honest about everything and, and you know, not die of some ca- terrible disease from stress. Yeah. So yeah, it's hard work, but it's rewarding. I mean, you would be forgiven and, and you're going to, you're going to want to stop me halfway through this, but like, I realized watching this documentary, to be honest with you, and I realized reading this book that like, you were a name and you were a photo and you were a role on a TV show almost more than anyone else I've met. You were a story. You were a joke on a late night show. To watch you take back and go, I was a real person the entire time. 
<laughs> the entire time, yes. <laughs> yeah. And to not write a book that's filled with and, – and to live a life that's filled with bitterness – but this filled with like a tremendous amount of love for people is unbelievable to me. Where does that come from? Survival. <laughs> it's just, it's it's a choice that I've made. I've, I mean, I've been a, always been a big reader, and I'm an insatiable learner. I like to learn, so I I studied a lot of psychology very early on. I you know my memories, dreams, and reflections. One of the first books I read by Carl Jung is not an easy read to be like diving into it all and no, I just young believe young in, young in yeah, so I mean I know it's crazy right <laughs> yeah, when I was yeah. a teenager yeah. and I was just devouring this yeah. and alcohemy and Marie-Louise von yeah. Franz and devotion fairy tales Robert Bly Iron John I mean go I, every single bullfinch's mythology I, I was just sucking it all in and I realized I could paint the picture of my own life and that yeah life isn't easy it's what you do with these whatever happens to you not what happens to you it's, it's just it's just um, I don't know I just thought why not love somebody yeah. In spite of it all. Just keep – you can't change people. You can only love them. Beautiful. <laughs> what does it feel like when you take your story back? I feel great because I'm talking about the stuff that I care about. Like right now you're asking me questions about what I care about instead of my boyfriends and my boobs. You know, that's kind of what yeah, it always was, a, was. Yeah. And I was like, so, you know, but, but this is – I've oh, – this is these – these are the <laughs> things I talk about with, you know, really close friends and you know, my kids and it's this – it comes from the same place. It comes from my heart. But, 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 but and can you, I still don't feel like I got an answer to the question. What, what happens when you've lived a life when someone – where some other people have told your story, have profited from your story – and you are taking your own story back. What does that feel like? Well, it's empowering. It's just natural. Like I kind of knew this was going to happen at some point. I didn't know who was going to be listening or if anybody would care. But um, I'm just really grateful that I've been able to tell my story. It's It's been the weight of the world off my shoulders maybe. Well, um, thanks for talking to me uh, at the tail end of this crazy press run you've been on. Yeah. Yeah. The best part of all of this was book signings, meeting people one-on-one. -on -one. People are pouring their hearts out to me, and I feel like it's, it's great. What, what, what's the most surprising thing someone has said to you at one of these signings? Well, someone said to me you know, that they hadn't talked to their mother in a really long time, but after reading my book, they, they called and reconnected with their family and, and, their, their, and decided not to be bitter but to be, to be more loving and to think about people's past and, and I don't know, it's just really incredible. I see a lot of tears, a lot of young girls saying, this has really helped me a lot and and I feel empowered by what I've gone through. So it feels good. It feels like I'm onto something. It feels I, really great. I hope you can feel in the in the room when you were walking in here, you know, um, just how much love people feel for you. I appreciate it. No, I feel rooted for it. I feel this is a great time for me. I, I, I really appreciate it. Thanks for being here. <laughs> Thank you. Pamela Anderson uh, has a new Netflix documentary. It's called Pamela, A Love Story. She's got a new memoir out called Love, Pamela. If you want to watch that conversation with me and Pamela Anderson, um, you can find it on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Q with Tom Power. Keisha Cheeseman and Bianca Miranda are two playwrights who want to talk about the word fat the way we might use it as an insult, the way we might want to use it in sort of hushed tones. And what they've done is they're doing this new play called The F Word, which is about fat phobia. It's about misconceptions we have about weight and shape. But it's also about their love for themselves, their love for one another, and their journey towards self-acceptance. It's playing now in Calgary until February 19th. Here's my conversation with Keisha Cheeseman and Bianca Miranda. Hi, everybody. How are you doing? 
Great. How are you? How are you? I'm so good. I'm so good. I'm so happy to talk to the two of you. So, Bianca, this is my understanding of it. This started out as a 10-minute play in in 2017, and then in the years that follow, you develop it into a full-length play. Bianca, look, what do you remember from the experience of putting the 10-minute the show together? Yeah, um, so we were part of a collective creation with Handsome Alice Theatre, where it brought together around 10 uh, femme and non-binary folks uh, to talk about different facets of their identities. And Keisha and I, first of all, have been wanting to work together forever, and we thought, hey, we should talk about, you know, like our journey in like larger bodies. And at that time, um, I had just kind of picked up the book called Shrill by Lindy West. And, you know, it started the conversation as to why is the word fat so bad? Um, and then we kind of, you know, went through a whole timeline of our lives of like, okay, so it started when, you know, as you've said in your introduction, it was said in hush-hush tones. And then it kind of became this cautionary tale down to like back then fearing that word. And so how that piece evolved is that we essentially reclaimed that word for ourselves and got the audience to chant along with us. We're fat and awesome and beautiful. I mean, that's I mean, that's such a beautiful story. And what I find what I find really uh, interesting about that is that. 10 minutes, Keisha, as far as I can tell, like 10 minutes was not enough. Like, so after you do the 10 minutes, what do you sort of like continue to explore after you do the 10 minutes? Yeah. Um, I think one thing that always like fueled me and Bianca was um, like anger. <laughs> um, there was, there was a moment like after we did the 10 minute piece, the original one, and we were talking about like photography and things like that and how like, nobody like photographers never want to take pictures of us and that's something that we've always wanted to do so then uh, a next 10 minute iteration we kind of explored like why don't people want to take pictures of us so we made the audience pull out their phones and take pictures of us <laughs> and also with um another thing we explored in that same thing was a segment called ask a fatty which is going to be that's in, in our play right now as well where we did a poll online um, for uh, fat people and people who are not fat and just asked them some questions. And, and they were able to ask um, whatever they wanted to ask about fat people. And we put it into a segment where Bianca and I are like talk show hosts and we answer the questions live. <laughs> Bianca, can I ask a little bit about just a, a little bit about the F word? Like when the show is called the F word and the uh, F word in, in which case is, is fat, mm -hmm. there's an implication that when you say the F word, the F is a bad word. As much as you want to tell me, like, what's your relationship like with that word? It's definitely changed and evolved over the years. Um, I think before, as I said, like, it was something that I just did not want to be associated with. You know, like, I would, I would hide. I, I would make myself smaller if if that word was said out loud. And a lot of people um, have such different relationships with that word. And I think, like, some people who don't know how loaded it is for some of us just kind of use it. Um, really without thinking about the consequences of, you know, what, what that word might um, evoke for someone else. So I could, I hear people like, you know, they're just having a meal and then saying like, I'm such a yeah, fatty yeah, yeah. For, for nourishing myself. <laughs> so things like that would come up and I just felt myself like just making myself smaller and hiding and not wanting to 
be associated with that, like I said. But I think throughout the journey of this piece, um, it's now given me so much power like to you know step into that identity and like really reclaim that word for myself I feel that when I say it out loud in a room full of people who don't expect it it's like yeah that's right I did call myself fat <laughs> yeah right like they're not expecting it they they to them it's this word that they might be a bit afraid of or they might be a bit afraid of, of you referring to yourself as in but when you say that it kind of freaks it freaks them out as much as it makes you feel uh, empowered, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Keisha, like in in the play, you also address the intersection of race and and weight too, right? Am I right about that? Yeah. So I think first and foremost, like Bianca and I, um, being women of color, we can't separate any of our identities from that. Yeah. Um, when people see us at first value, it's like, oh, you're fat. And for me, yeah, you're fat and you're black. Like, so just already being on stage, it's like my existence is an intersection. And um, in in the show, Bianca and I talk a lot about like our cultural foods and how much we, we love those things. But we also have um, a segment where we play family members, them being interviewed about us and how they feel about our bodies and our journeys with fat and everything like that. And um, a lot of the cultural things that come up for us. Have those intersections shown up in sort of like your your career? Because the theater world, you are a body on stage and you are judged against other bodies for roles. Like, yeah. Keisha, has that intersection showed up in like your in your career journey? Yeah, I think like when even in like theater school, it was very much like, these are the roles that you can play. Um, And Bianca and I, even though like right now we are like doing a two-hander show in a professional theater company, we never had the opportunity to play a lead character in a play or have more than a couple lines or do anything besides like a gender neutral side character in the background going, yeah, sure. I agree. (laughs) You know, or like you got it. (laughs) Exactly. So like we were never given the chance to like actually fully form our craft on stage because we don't fit the mold of what people think are those who are deserving to be seen on stage or our characters on stage. I mean, that's, that's a powerful thing. Um, Bianca, tell me more about the. And now you know what I'm. I, I'm acknowledging my own discomfort here, which is perhaps the the point of the, perhaps the point of the exercise here. But the ask a fatty um, a survey you do. Can you tell me some like the questions, the kind of questions you might get? Yeah, I mean, also like that survey is inspired by, like us acknowledging that you know what for, for the world not loving fat people, they sure do think a lot about fat people, <laughs> and so this was kind of the opportunity opportunity to be like, hey, we know you got questions, and we may have answers, and some of the some of the questions are like, hey, so when, why, where, what, how, what did you do to be fat? And it's like, oh, okay. Y- you want to know the origins, <laughs> okay? And and some as invasive as like, you know, like how, like what happens in the bedroom? You know, like what what exactly does that look like? Like, is it more challenging? Like what? Ha- the, these like, are these are real oh, questions. You'll these get these are these are real questions that real people have. You know, we gave them the power to be anonymous, really. But I think when you 
when you have that power, like it's all unfiltered. Is is that comfortable for you to be on stage answering these kind of questions? It's 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 the kind of the point of that segment. It's like this overwhelming like are you hearing what what yeah. you all just asked? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and I should say, yeah. I mean, I, I don't want people to come away f- with an impression that this is a dark or heavy or you know, I mean, I can so so just for the radio. If you're listening to this on the podcast or the radio, uh, both Keisha and Bianca are both nodding no at me like violently right now. Uh, but Keisha, talk to me about that. The idea that this has to be a joyful excursion too, right? Yeah, like Bianca and I, like we are funny people. We just love laughing and joking around. Like one of our nerves about the show is, can we make it through without laughing? <laughs> um, we wanted to incorporate so many different types of storytelling and comedy into the show, not only because that's just who we are as people, but it's also a great way to tackle tough subjects in a way that's approachable and accessible for others without feeling like we're like pointing the finger at them and um, like blaming people. Like we still hope that they're going to reflect, but we hope that that does come with joy and laughter because that's what happened when we wrote the show. And there's just so many adventures and different modes of storytelling. Like we said, there's the Ask a Fatty segment and fairy tales. And then there's um, like commercials. There's a little lecture. What are the commercials? Just... What are the commercials? <laughs> uh, <laughs> a, a weight loss ad. <laughs> <laughs> a very enticing weight loss okay. ad. I'm like, okay. Okay. I, like, I like just the little teaser I'm getting here of, the, of, the, yeah. of this thing right now. Yes. You know? I mean, my, my assumption has to be, uh, Keisha, my, my assumption would have to be that um, this must be particularly meaningful. Like the idea that like not only is it because of this, how this thing started as a little 10-minute thing, like barely a TikTok, and then it turns into this, <laughs> just trying to sound like the kids, uh, and this turns into this, um, you know, this mass, this this bigger thing. I mean, this play you're doing now in Calgary, I mean, I, my, my hope is that it goes everywhere, but also that it's born out of real-life experiences that you and Bianca shared a commonality. Like, it, what does that mean to you personally, like to, to, to have the show, to have this life? Oh, like, it means the world to us, honestly. Like, even just us being on stage together has been a dream of ours since we became friends a decade ago. Yeah. And the fact that we get to be on stage um, in an institution that has rejected us and be our true, authentic selves together and tell our story and get to perform a bunch of different characters that perhaps we would never get casted for. It just feels like a dream and one of the most exciting things that we could think of doing. Um, Bianca, answer me this now before we go. So two people go to see the show in Calgary. They they get up from their chairs, the show's over, they, they get in their car, um, they, they drive off. What conversation do you hope they're having after watching the show? Um, I would hope it's like... Wow, I had such a great time, but damn, I had no idea that diet culture was that insidious and so ingrained in our lives. I didn't even know that, you know, fat people are facing this and I think I got to do some work. And I think I would say that for, you know, like folks who are not fat and can't necessarily relate to the subject uh, at hand, but also for our communities, um, I hope that they go, oh, my God, I've never seen anything like that. And I feel so celebrated and seen 
And I want more of those stories on stage. It's a powerful thing you're you're both doing, um, and and uh, it's not surprising to me that it's it's taken off the way that it has. Um, my my congratulations to the two of you. Best of luck with the run, and and thanks a lot for for making time for us today. Thank you so Thank much. You. Keisha Cheeseman and Bianca Miranda were my guests. If you're in Calgary, get out to see the show. It's called The F Word. It's playing now until February 19th at the Martha Cohen Theater in Calgary, Alberta. All right, that's it for the show today. Um, if you're listening to this on the podcast, uh, A, thank you for doing that. And if you want to tell your friends about it or you want to subscribe or follow, we would love for you to do that too. You can listen at CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, we're also checking the Q email these days. You want to, we weren't checking, it for, <laughs> checking it for a long time, but we're checking it now. Uh, Q at CBC.ca is, is the place to get in touch with me or on Instagram. I, I, I check the DMs. I do. Uh, I'm at Tom Joe Power there. Uh, tomorrow, you're going to listen to, you might not know this name, um, but what an incredible story. Jesse Crimes, this widely regarded visual artist, made his most important work while he was locked up in a U.S. federal prison. And he'll tell you that story. We'll see you then. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.